Well, I've got to ask, you know, do we prize God's word in our language? Do we really prize it? I mean, do we clutch to our Bibles and do we treasure every time we get to open it either on a, in a physical book or on a screen like this? May God uh, stir our hearts to love his word. So listen now to um, the reading for today is from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 32 to 37 from the New Living Translation. Don't worry about this Philistine, uh, David told Saul. I'll go and fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a, sh a lamb from my flock, I go after, with, after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. This is the Lord's word for us as well. Amen. Thank you, Mike. I was hoping you were going to read out of the Isnak translation for us, but all right. We'll do with English, huh? Last week we began a series of messages on the life of David, and there's no way that in four weeks we can cover the entire life of David, or really even the, all of the key stories of his life and, and that we have in the Bible. And so what we're doing is we're taking snippets from David's life, a few key stories, to look at these uh, four vocations that David fulfilled. David was a shepherd. He was a warrior. We meet him today as a warrior. He was a king and he was a poet. And when we look at David through these four vocational lenses, we, see, we can see ourselves in his life and in his story, and we can see his story played out in, in our lives as well. David was Israel's greatest king. Uh, he was a brilliant politician, a military strategist. Apparently, he was um, brave and compelling, attractive. He was also so human that it's sometimes even embarrassing, some of the stories we read of David. And he starts out as a nobody, David. He, he was the last of eight sons of Jesse. He was small, he was a shepherd, he was overlooked, but yet he was chosen by Samuel to be Israel's next king. The prophet Samuel, the last judge of Israel, and, and, uh, and God was directing Samuel to anoint David as king. Uh, Samuel's instinct is to choose the biggest and the most powerful and the strongest person about, uh, among the, the pack, but God restrains him with this wonderful advice, don't look on the outward appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord does not see as mortals see, they look on the outward appearance, 
but God looks at the heart. And last week we, we saw how uh, Samuel anointed David to become king, but this will not come to pass for some time. Saul is still reigning as king. He's large, and Israel is in trouble. They're in the middle of a battle, a, a war going on with the neighboring Philistines. The two armies are eyeing each other from opposite mountains with a valley at the base of each of those mountains between. You can actually visit the site in Israel and you can pick up five stones or one stone and you can put them in your pocket and walk around for a little while imagining what it might have been like to be David who had collected five smooth stones. The story is a good one. It's full of excitement. It's full of tension and violence. It's fit for Hollywood. Um, in a scholarly analysis of the story of David and Goliath, Walter Brueggemann talks about how children love the story. Notice a scholarly analysis. He talks about how children love the story of David and Goliath because children live in a world full of big, intimidating, oppressive giants. They know exactly what it's like. So David's older brothers are in the army, and though David has been anointed to become the next king, though that won't come for some time, David's job is to bring lunch to his brothers who are soldiers in the army. One day from the Philistine camp comes one lone soldier, even bigger than Seth Wall. He's big. He's very big. He wears a helmet. He wears a breastplate and shin guards. He's, uh, he has a spear and a very big sword. His name is Goliath, and the very sight of him strikes fear in the entire Israelite army, in all of the hearts of the soldiers. And so from a distance, he issues this challenge to Israel. He says this, choose a man from among yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we might fight together. Well, everyone knows, of course, how this would turn out. Goliath is big, strong, fierce, armed to the teeth. And for 40 days, Goliath would come down the mountain and hurl challenges and insults at the people of Israel while they quake in fear, wringing their hands, talking among themselves about how terrible and hopeless this whole thing is. And in doing so, all of this is amplifying their fear of the Philistines, all their talk about it. And now Brueggemann says that they have become immobilized by their fear. The whole army is paralyzed in their fear of this giant Goliath. David can hear and he can see what's going on. And so he volunteers. I'll fight him, he says. His brothers scold him for his uh, silly na naivety. The king himself delivers the line, you're not able to go against this Philistine, you're just a little boy. David assures the king that God will protect him, just as God had protected him against the lions and the bears uh, when he was tending his father's sheep in the wilderness. 
Saul is out of options. No one else is stepping up, so he agrees to let David give it a shot. He insists, though, that David wear his Saul's armor. Saul is huge, and he insists that David wear his armor. And, of course, it's too big, and it's too heavy, and when David puts the armor on, he can't even walk, let alone fight. So down the mountain, David goes with his slingshot and five smooth stones and his confidence in God's protection. The fight's over before it even begins. It's kind of like one of those uh, heavyweight uh, boxing matches, like in Mike Tyson fight. You pay a whole bunch of money to watch this fight, and 30 seconds, there's a flurry of punches, and the whole thing's over. The guy's on the ground, and the fight's over, and everyone leaves. David moves quickly, slings a stone, hits Goliath in the forehead. He falls on his face, and the Philistines flee. The fight is over. I was fascinated to read an article in the New Yorker by um, by one of the one of the <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell, uh, one of our great cultural uh, theorists. The article was called "How David Be- Beats Goliath When Underdogs Break the Rules." He ended up writing a book about it and doing a TED talk on on this. Um, the book is called "David and Goliath." The article was shorter. Uh, so that's what I read. Gladwell, uh, you know, he sells a lot of books about business and culture. And, um, and he argues that David won because he broke the conventional rules of engagement. He didn't walk slowly, methodically. He ran. He didn't carefully go around in a circle watching. No, he ran unencumbered without the armor, without conventional weaponry. He ran right at his opponent. David won, Gladwell argues, because he was smarter, quicker, more nimble, and wasn't afraid to think outside the box. And once he was willing to think outside the box, Gladwell says, Goliath is easy to defeat. I don't find Gladwell's um, exegesis all that convincing or his theology, but he does make a point that is worth mentioning. Uh, There is a great story in the tale of David and Goliath, and part of it is about power and the power of individual courage and the power of deep love that expresses itself in commitment. But as I read through the article, I wanted to think a little bit more deeply about power and where do we find our source of power? Where does power really come from? Where do we as humans and people of God, where do we channel our warrior energy as David did in that battle against Goliath? And David's power lies in five smooth stones, his five smooth stones, symbolically. Uh, And this story shows us five sources of power, God's power, David's power, your power. So I want to reflect on these stones, these five smooth stones, as symbols of where true power is to be found. I even brought some polished stones with me. My good neighbor, Paul, is teaching me how to polish uh, rocks for the past few weeks, and so I thought I'd bring some, um, some of his polished rocks to share with us this morning. The first stone for David is that he has made peace with ordinary time. 
He has made peace with ordinary time, with the, with the rhythms of mundane life. He knows how to put his own needs and desires to one side for an extended period of time to do unglamorous hard work. That's what David does in the first part of the story. He's a shepherd. He lives out in the fields. He looks after the father's sheep. What a boring job if you own an iPhone. Um, and he takes provisions to various commanders of the army. So he's just serving lunch to his brothers now. Some parts of every single one of our lives and every part of some lives are unrewarding, unregarded, and unattractive. Most of you will doubtless spend some of your time uh, taking care of children, young children, or maybe even being unemployed, recovering from surgery, doing a job that has no glamour, no acclaim. And that's when you face one of your defining moments. Either you learn the rhythm of the everyday, or you lapse into a sequence of escapist thrills, punctuated by days of resentment. David finds a way to make the ordinary, the ordinary into a source of pride, into a source of training for him even, the mundane into a way of building relationships. And that's where he gets his power, his relationship with time. The second stone for David is that he has made friends with the outdoor world, with the natural world. David, notice, doesn't rely on the same technology that Goliath relies on. Doesn't rely on physical advantage. He spent his life outside. He knows how to keep sheep. He knows where to find smooth stones. He knows how to craft a sling. Goliath has no idea about these things. If you want to be like David, ask yourself, when was the last time I felt the joy of nature and sharpened my focus by spending some time in the wild, in the woods, in the streams, in the mountains, or even in a simple garden in my backyard? Have I so surrounded my life with computers and phones and gadgets that, uh, and comforts and appearances and armor that I have forgotten the skills that money cannot buy? Some tricks you can never pick up in an office or in a laboratory or in a library. David learns from his outdoor life the wisdom of the owl, the cunning of the fox, the agility of the wildcat, and the sharp eye of the eagle. That's where he gets his power. Stone number three for David is that he knows himself. He knows himself. Saul assumes that David should be as much like Goliath as possible. You're going to defeat this enemy, you better match him in strength and appearance. And so he tells David that he should wear Saul's armor, even though it's ridiculous, it's way too big. David knows who he is. He knows he's not Goliath. He knows he's not Saul. If you're feeling burdened and heavy laden right now, could it be because you're wearing someone else's armor? Are you trying to be someone you're not and never will be? Strive to be only 
what you can be. Don't be a second-rate version of someone else, not your father, not your professor, not your boss, not your friend, not your sister. God made you the way you are because he needed someone just like you. He didn't need another David. David knows there's no point in putting on Saul's armor. Now, of course, Saul might think he's being disrespectful, taking unnecessary risks, but David knows there's just no use in trying to be Saul. He knows his own weaknesses, and he knows his own strengths, and that's where he gets his power. The third stone for, or sorry, the fourth stone for David is that he knows God. He knows the power of God. He knows who God is. David knows that Goliath is not God. You see, Goliath is the very real reality right in front of him. And that reality is big, strong, ugly, and intimidating. It's reality right in front of him. But he also knows that Goliath is not ultimate reality. It might be the reality that he sees, but there's a bigger reality. Let me tell you another tragedy, I think, of this story. How has it happened that Christians in this nation have lost so much respect from people of other faiths or people of no faith at all? Well, I'll tell you why or how. It has happened by Christians turning Jesus into Goliath. That's a tragedy. Jesus is not a cosmic or political or cultural bully. Jesus is not Goliath. Whatever you think about the truth, faith or no faith, Goliath certainly is not God. And David knows that. David knows where the secret of the universe lies, and it's not with Goliath. That's where David gets his power. Stone number five is that David knew the essence of power itself. He knew what power fundamentally was. If you look at what we've learned from the first four stones, know time, know the outdoor world, know yourself, know God, um, all being well, these, these things, your years of adulthood have already taught you. Your college degree or your business prowess has given you real power in the world. But where does that power reside? Not in Goliath's bravado, but in David's skill. Not in Goliath's muscle, but in David's faith. Not in Goliath's plausibility, but in David's truth. Not in Goliath's armor, but in David's wisdom. If the last two or three decades, or however long you've been an adult, has taught you what to do with time, who you truly are, who God is, and what it's like to be in the natural world, they will have given you real power. They'll have given you the power of David, a power that nobody can take away from you. But even David lost sight of the essence of that power later on in the story. And most of us do for one season or another. And when we lose sight of that power, that's precisely the moment that we're drawn towards Goliath, to be like Goliath. In the end, Goliath's problem is not that he's too strong, but he's too weak. The more we try to be Goliath, the weaker we become. 
It shows we've lost sight of where true power lies. Ruby Bridges knew about this power. Ruby was six years old, African-American girl, the first student of her race to attend the all-white William Franz Elementary School in New Orleans in 1960. Norman Rockwell painted one of his most popular Saturday Evening Post covers about the day. It was a day with crowds of angry white adults, faces contorted in hate, shouting at a little black girl, four burly federal marshals, and in the middle of them, little Ruby Bridges in the painting in a white dress symbolizing her innocence in the midst of evil, pigtails, white socks, shoes, carrying her book, on her way to defeat a giant, the powerful giant of school segregation and the centuries of racism behind it. Ruby Bridges, as an adult, remembers this day when she was six years old and she walked alone into the all-white school. She said this, the morning of November 14th, federal marshals drove my mother and me the five blocks to William France. One of the men explained that when we arrived at the school, two marshals would walk in front of us and two behind. It reminded me of what Mama had taught us about God, that he is always there to protect us. Ruby Nell, she said as we pulled up to my new school, don't be afraid. There might be some people outside, but I'll be with you. Sure enough, people shouted and, shot and shook their fists when we got out of the car. I held my mother's hand and followed the marshals through the crowd up the steps into the school. The next morning, my mother told me she couldn't go to the school with me. She had to work and look after my brother and sister. The marshals will take good care of you, Ruby Nell, Mama assured me. Remember, if you get afraid, say your prayers. You can pray to God anytime, anywhere. He will always hear you. That was how I started praying on the way to school. The things people yelled at me didn't seem to touch me. Prayer was my protection. I imagine David like little Ruby Bridges, small, vulnerable, walking out onto the field to confront Goliath, absolutely sure of the rightness of his cause, absolutely sure that he was not alone. You see, the, the truth of the story is not just that it happened, but that it happens today. Little six-year-old girls overcome centuries of racism and laws of the state, walking through crowds of adults whose faces are contorted with hatred, cursing, spitting, threatening. Little girls saying their prayers. David and Goliath is a wonderful story, but it's more than a story. It contains truth about reality, truth about God, truth about a God who is always on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized, a God who can be counted on in the struggle against injustice, maybe the most important truth in the world. And it is a very old story with an important truth that God goes with us. God walks beside us whenever we step out 
onto the field to go up against a powerful and intimidating foe. Walter Brueggemann says that Goliath is the symbol of everything that is fierce and intimidating in this world. So let Goliath be whatever threatens you, whatever makes you feel small and weak and vulnerable, whatever paralyzes you with fear, the disease you just learned about that you now have to contend with, serious surgery that you're facing that understandably makes you afraid, the loss of your job or the threat of unemployment which is undercutting your self-confidence and esteem, the very challenge of finding a new job, getting up every day, and in spite of one rejection after another, continuing to show up with the resume, showing up prepared for yet another interview. The never-ending demands of parenting your children, the loss of a friend, a loved one, even the daily diminishment of aging, a very real giant. Then let Goliath be whatever immobilizes you, whatever paralyzes you in fear, fear of the future, fear of intimacy, fear of failure, fear of taking risks, fear of extending yourself, stretching yourself, fear of loneliness. Finally, then let Goliath be that final enemy, the power of death itself, which is the fear that is beneath every single fear, the fear of what philosophers call the fear of non-being, the fear of non-existence that creeps into our consciousness, every one of us from time to time. And so as we seek to uh, channel this energy of David and pray that God would give us these five stones of power, I wanna close our time by uh, allowing us to pray together using these words that uh, are ascribed to David in Psalm 23. I wanna invite you to stand and join me as we profess our faith together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Amen.